welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Well, good morning and uh, welcome along to Gateway this morning. Glad you're here. If you do happen to be visiting with us, we really hope that you'll feel comfortable. We're going to take some time now to delve into the scriptures. And uh, I'm going to begin with you uh, a new series this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking into um, one, a book of the Bible that's sometimes referred to as the strangest book in the Bible. And uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, when, when you read Ecclesiastes, and I really encourage you to do it over the next couple of weeks, just 12 chapters, not very long maybe read a few a day and get through it in the week. Uh, one of the things you'll immediately notice is the number of phrases in this book that have made their way into common usage in the English language. Phrases like, eat, drink, and be merry. A fly in the ointment. A little birdie told me. Actually, I haven't heard that phrase for a long, long time, but do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. My parents used to say that, and I... I don't think I said that to my parent, uh, to my kids, and I'm kind of wondering if that's one of those words that is making its way out of the English language, but a little bird told me. Uh, what goes around comes around, nothing new under the sun. All of those phrases that are in common usage in the English language come from this book. Um, it takes a very cynical, very gloomy view of life. And uh, some, having read it, have expressed doubts about its spiritual value. Why would it even be in the Bible? Why on earth would anybody want to read it? It seems to emphasize fate over faith, happiness over holiness, the natural over the spiritual. Quite frankly, it's a book that's more liable to depress you than inspire you. If it's light, inspirational, chicken soup for the Christian soul thoughts that you're looking for, then avoid this book like the plague. It's the antithesis of modern-day pop psychology with its positive strokes, I'm okay, you're okay, narcissism, uh, with its patronizing, bland assurances of peace, peace, when anybody with a mind who's only half open can see there is no peace. This, this is a, a gloomy book. It's, it's a book of brutal realism at best, deep pessimism at worst. I would bet a month's salary on the fact that it was written on a Monday morning. <laughs> it's, it's a book primarily of philosophy. It's the only book of philosophy in the Bible. Now, you use that word and I can almost hear somebody say, brilliant, that's all I need. I don't do philosophy. Of course you do. We all do philosophy. The fact that you don't think about philosophy is a philosophy. We're all philosophers. To be human is to be condemned to philosophy, all right? This is a book written by a person who actually stopped and thought. Now, it's been said that 10% of the people think, 10% of the people think they think, and the rest would rather die than think. This is a man who thought. He stopped and thought very deeply and very profoundly and very disturbingly about life. He asked hard but primal questions about life. Basic questions always begin with why, not how, all right? 
Most people, if they ask questions at all, generally ask how questions. How can I be happy? How can I have a good marriage, good kids? How can I make a living? How does this or that work? Our culture specializes in how questions. Science answers how questions. I don't don't mean that in any way disparagingly, but that's what science does. It answers how questions or what questions. How did the world begin? What are the chemical elements that make up this particular substance? But the reality is that science does not and in fact cannot answer why questions. Like, why is there an earth in the first place? Why is there something rather than nothing? If you want to probe into life, you really have to ask why questions and not just how questions. Ecclesiastes is a book written by an older man who asks and then seeks to answer why questions. It's an autobiographical account of a person who seeks answers by experimentation to life's perplexing why questions. And it's in this book that he shares his search and the conclusions of that search with with what he hopes will be uh, to a younger generation. He hopes that a younger generation will hear his search and his conclusion and effectively stop making all of the same mistakes that he made in his search. In effect, he's saying, listen, I was an expert in the fields that some of you are dabbling in, and I've been to the end of the road. I can tell you where that road leads. Listen to me. Now, you'll never really understand the book of Ecclesiastes unless you understand it is a book primarily of questions rather than answers. In one sense, the book of Ecclesiastes is an introduction to the rest of the Bible. I think if you were to teach, for example, a university-level course on the Bible, Ecclesiastes would be a great introduction. It would be a great stepping-in point. It answers Uh, it, It asks the questions that the rest of the Bible answers. In effect, Ecclesiastes is part one, and the rest of the Bible is part two. You know, there's there's nothing really more meaningless than an answer without a question. If somebody comes up to you and says, "The answer is 42," you're going to go, "What? It's 42. The answer is 42." You think, "Well, what's the question?" There's nothing more meaningless than an answer without a question. Ecclesiastes is the question, the rest of the Bible is the answer. This this book is an incredibly postmodern book. It fits right into the world that we're living in. That's why we've called this series Solomon Among the Postmoderns. It's incredibly up to date in the questions that he poses and then the answers that he gives. Most of those answers, by the way, are completely wrong. This is a man's search for what in philosophy is known as the summum bonum 
in life. Now, if you've studied philosophy, you will have encountered that Latin phrase that's said to originate with Cicero. This is philosophy 101. And the Latin phrase summum bonum means the ultimate, that which is of ultimate importance. It's the ultimate good, the highest value, the ultimate meaning. It answers the question. Summum bonum is the answer or the attempt to answer the question, what is the ultimate meaning in life? That question is the holy grail of Western philosophy, and it's the controlling, framing question of this book. The author asks that question. He probes that foundational ethical question. It's an attempt to find out meaning that undergirds human existence. C.S. Lewis uses a particularly helpful metaphor to describe the human condition. He says, we're like a fleet of ships sailing in formation, in a, in a kind of a naval formation, out on the open ocean. If the voyage is going to be successful, there have to be three elements present. Number one, the ships must stay in an ordered formation. They can't get out of formation and in case they begin to collide with one another and get in one another's way. So the first thing is an ordered formation of the fleet. The second thing is that each individual ship in the fleet must be seaworthy with her engines or her sailing gear in workable order. Actually, you cannot have either of these without the other. If the, ship, if the ships keep on getting out of formation and colliding with one another, one another, then they won't remain seaworthy for very long. On the other hand, if the steering gear, for example, of a ship or ships is defective, then they won't be able to avoid having collisions with each other. You have to have both in place, a well-ordered fleet and seaworthy vessels. Now, the first, staying in correct formation and avoiding collisions is about what we call social ethics. That's about how we get on with one another, with other people, with other people groups, with other nations. It's a, how we avoid collisions and thereby, thereby avoid social chaos. The second is about character, about virtue. It's about individual ethics. You see, if people aren't seaworthy in their character, then collisions at a social level will be inevitable, and social chaos will be the unavoidable result. But beyond those two levels, beyond social ethics and individual ethics, there is a third and more basic level. You have to answer the question, why is the fleet at sea in the first place? What is its mission? What, what, what is its sailing orders? Sometimes that's referred to as normative ethics. You know, however well the fleet maintains formation and avoids collision, and even if all of the ships are seaworthy and stay afloat, the haunting question remains. Why are they at sea in the first place? No matter how successful the fleet is at the first two levels, the voyage would be an abject failure if the sailing mission said, go to New York, and somehow they ended up in Calcutta. Listen, it doesn't take a prophet or a genius to detect that our postmodern culture's concern is almost exclusively limited to level one. 
to social ethics. We are, com we are concerned about avoiding collisions. The political correct madness that has gripped our society is all about avoiding collisions. Don't offend people. Accept everyone. Don't judge anybody. Whatever you do, don't collide. Our, our society, our culture is far less concerned with level two, with individual ethics. Pretty much the best thing we've got to say about that is what you do in private is your own business as long as it remains private and it doesn't impact on level one social ethics. As long as you don't collide with other people, we don't care about character and virtue. In our society, we've basically reduced character, virtues, and vices to just two things. Tolerance is the prime, probably the only virtue, and intolerance is the only vice. And the overarching concern in that virtue and that vice remains don't collide. Avoiding collisions. When a person says, as they so often do, my behavior is okay, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, they are thinking only of level one, of avoiding collision. They are thinking about social ethics only. It really doesn't matter what shape the ship is in, so long as I don't bang into other people's ships. But frankly, that kind of thinking is profoundly flawed. Social ethics ultimately are built on and depend on individual ethics. As, as Lewis so aptly says, what is the good of telling ships how to steer so as to avoid collisions if in fact they are such crazy old tubs that they can't be steered at all? What's the point of having ideals and rules for social behavior if we know our individual greed, lust, cowardice, fear, ill temper, or self-conceit is such that it will prevent us from keeping any ideals or rules. You know what, the stark common sense reality is that without good individuals, you will never have a good society. Without individual vessels being seaworthy, you can never have an ordered fleet. We have to have both of these things. We have to have individual ethics as well as social ethics. As I say, in our postmodern culture, we are very vague in our thinking about individual ethics, about character. But we are totally ignorant and silent when it comes to the question of normative ethics. Why are we at sea in the first place? What is our mission? We focus on how questions and we avoid why questions. We avoid why questions because we don't have a clue. We have no answers to them. Ecclesiastes is so postmodern. The author asks questions and comes up with answers that could come right out of the philosophy departments of most universities in the world. He says, what is the ultimate meaning of life? Why are we here? Then he goes on this massive search and he comes back and says, there isn't any meaning. Life is completely pointless. We have no idea why we're at sea. We have no sailing orders. Enjoy the voyage. Arnold Toynbee, who was a historian and a philosopher of history, noted that in the 21 great 
civilizations that have existed on our planet, postmodern Western civilization is the first and only one that does not have and therefore cannot teach any answer to the question, why do we exist? All of the other civilizations had answers to that question. Now, in viewing them, we might well say they were wrong. They had answers that were different and sometimes, in fact, even competing. That isn't the point. They at least had some idea of why we are here. In our culture, we are what one author described as co uh, cosmic orphans. We have been left free, or rather, we have more correctly been abandoned to choose or to create our ultimate meaning and value. Quite frankly, folks, we may well be the most knowledgeable, technologically advanced culture of history, but it seems that we know more and more about less and less. The ancient author of Ecclesiastes felt this dilemma profoundly, deeply, and he went off and explored what might be the meaning of life. As we read the book, we journey with him through his attempts to find ultimate meaning and ultimate, personality, uh, 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 ultimate purpose for life. I think Ecclesiastes asks the right questions, but I think they come up, or he comes up with the wrong conclusions. Without the answers that the rest of the Bible, and in particular the New Testament, offer, I think this book would leave us in a desperately dark and despairing place. When you look at the questions that this man asks, you see Jesus clearly giving answers to those questions. Jesus both contrasts and complements the author of Ecclesiastes. So with that as a bit of an introduction, let's read the first 11 verses. Prepare yourself for a journey into the dark side. <laughs> the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, where they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear with hearing. What has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's all been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. And you can hear Pink Floyd playing in the background. <laughs> now, the author of this book is said to be the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Traditionally, people have regarded this as Solomon. More latterly, perhaps some scholars have challenged that authorship, and I won't venture into all the reasons why. They suggest that it might have been written at a later date by someone who uh, fictitiously imagines themselves to be Solomon. In, in a way, the end result amounts to pretty much the same thing. It's written from Solomon's viewpoint. 
Okay, and so I'm actually going to stay with the traditional interpretation and suggest to you that perhaps the author is Solomon. Verse 1 calls him a preacher. That comes from a Hebrew word, kohaleth. Uh, different translations can't quite agree on whether preacher is the best translation of that word. Some use preacher, some use teacher, some philosopher, some, some just keep the Hebrew word kohaleth. The, the original word comes from a Hebrew word that means to, to gather or to assemble. When the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, was translated into Greek, they used a Greek word to take the word koholeth, and they used the word ecclesiastes. Now, some of you who are Bible scholars uh, or, or interested in Bible words, you'll see a link between the word ecclesiastes and a New Testament word in Greek called ekklesia which is the word that we use in the New Testament for the gathering of God's people. It's the, it's the word that's used to describe the church. So koholeth means together, and over time it came to mean the one who addressed the gathering, hence some people translate it preacher. Tim Keller, um, the Redeemer Presbyterian pastor, says he thinks it's better translated the professor of philosophy. So... We can read, as we read through, we can deduce certain things about this man's character, about this man, about his life. Number one, he's an older man speaking to his audience from the vantage point of that age. Secondly, he's a wealthy man. He has or had the resources necessary to explore all these possible avenues of meaning. He was able to go to the end of the road where most of us don't have the resources to take us there. Most of us just dream what it might be like to venture down the paths that this man traveled to the point of exhaustion. He went to the end of these roads because he had the resources that allowed him to do it. So he's old, he's wealthy, he's a well-educated, very wise man. He's an honest man. He shares the best features of the postmodern mind along with its worst. In terms of the best features, he is deeply honest and authentic. In terms of the worst, he's profoundly disturbing and cynical. He's a very hard-working, energetic person. Whatever he does, he does it with all of his might. He's 100% committed to every pursuit. The opening verses that we've just read set this incredibly pessimistic scene for the rest of the book. In verse 2 and 3, he presents the conclusion of all of these years of, of searching a conclusion that the rest of the book will unpack in detail. And he starts off and says, vanity of vanities. Vanity, all is vanity. What does a person gain or what profit is there in terms of everything we do under the sun? His conclusion is so blatant, it's almost violent. Only the sleeping could miss it. He states it five times in verse two. It's vanity. It's all vanity. It's vanity of vanities. You know, the construction of the Hebrew language is different than, than English. When we want to compare something, we might say fast, faster, fastest. So we would say holy, holier, holiest. The Hebrews don't do that. They use superlatives. So when they want to talk about the holiest, they say holy of holies. When this guy is saying vanity of vanities, he's using a superlative to talk about the ultimate level of futility. 
It's just futile. When he uses the word vanity, he doesn't use it in a way that most of us would tend to think about being vain or being consumed by vanity. For us, we tend to think of excessive pride in or concentration upon ourselves. We would talk about a vain person being obsessed with themselves. Um, We talk about a vanity mirror, you know, looking at yourself in the mirror. That's not what the Hebrew means. The Hebrew word hevel literally means a breath or a vapor. It's It's like the puff of breath that comes out of your mouth on a very frosty morning. And the idea is it's elusive, it's ephemeral, it's here for a moment and then it's gone. James chapter 4 verse 14 captures the exact meaning of the ancient Hebrew word when he says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. He's he's referring back to Ecclesiastes. Here, gone. Breathe in, breathe out. That's it. Life is gone. Now from that, develop this idea of futility. Such, so short, what does it all mean? It's futile. And so the word vanity came to express a sense of of absurdity, of of complete meaninglessness. In chapter 2, verse 11, he he says it's like striving to catch the wind. Literally, it means chasing the wind or shepherding the wind. We all know we can't control the wind. You can never shepherd the wind. You couldn't shepherd the wind into a paddock for the night. It's absolutely futile. If you went out with a a jar and tried to catch the wind, as soon as you put the top on it, you don't have wind. It's absolutely futile, like trying to build cloud castles in the sky on a windy day. That's his assessment of life. Dark, pessimistic. And as I say, before you completely dismiss the man and saying, well, he shouldn't listen to Pink Floyd like that. You know, you listen to that much Pink Floyd, you're going to start feeling about life like that. Or he shouldn't be reading those existential philosophers like Albert Camus or Jean-Paul Sartre. You have to understand that this man's search is done within two very distinct limits. And it's those two limitations that condemned him firstly to his pessimism and then secondly, I think, to his wrong conclusions. First limitation is a limitation of space. You read this book and you'll, use, you'll see this phrase come again and again and again. Actually, 29 times the writer says, under the sun. It's a key phrase in the book. 29 times in 12 chapters, he says, my search under the sun. The phrase under heaven is used another three times. Upon the earth is used a further seven times. So 39 times he's referring to this limitation of space. I'm under heaven. By under the sun, he means a life viewed only from a human perspective. This is a life lived on the horizontal dimension without any vertical dimension at all. It's a life lived without God, although he's not an atheist. He refers to God often, but again, a bit like Pink Floyd, you know, the album, The Wall, the phone is ringing, nobody is answering. He's he's up there somewhere, but he's hung up the receiver. And so this is a man who's living the best he can with the resources that he has, which are considerable, to try and find meaning. And he says, under the sun, it's futile. There is, in this book, no divine revelation. 
There is no thus saith the Lord in this book. It's a secular search for meaning without any reference to spiritual realities. So the first limitation is space. The second limitation is time. The search is bound by the phrase as long as I live or in my life. This man has absolutely no conception of or confidence in life after death. He's trying to find answers to the questions of meaning within the limited time bounded by that dash that marks his birth to his death. And the gloomy conclusion is there's no meaning. It's meaningless. It's meaningless nonsense. There's no profit in anything we do. That word profit, or some translations have gain, is another key word in the book. When you're trying to unpack a book, you, you nearly always look for key phrases, key words, what are the repetitive things that keep coming up again and again. Obviously, under the sun, in my life. And this one, profit. There's no profit, no gain. Keeps coming up again and again. In verse 3, he says, what does a man gain for all his labor? Now, it's a commercial term that's most often used in the, in, the, in the context of running a business. And it refers to the surplus, the thing that's left over after all of the expenses have been deduced. It's the anticipated return we have on the investment of our hard work. It's the goal of any business. Well, this man gloomily concludes that in a life bounded by space and time, there isn't any profit. You're working for nothing. All your work is a pointless waste of time and effort. Actually, interestingly, Jesus agrees with this man's perspective. To people whose life is bounded by those same two limitations of space and time, without any vertical dimension in their life, Jesus asks, what profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Same conclusion. I wonder if he was hearkening back to this book. Solomon tries to prove his conclusion that everything is completely meaningless. In these first few verses, he lists a series of things that never seem to go anywhere, do anything, or gain anything. And in verses 4 to 7, he points to the created order. Firstly, he talks in verse 4 about generations. He says, generations come and go. The younger generation becomes the older generation. The rise of each generation, whether it was baby boomers, baby busters, gen X, Y, Z, or millennials, they come and go, he says, they give the impression that something new is happening, something hopeful, something of progress and promise, but in reality, nothing changes, nothing develops, it's same old, same old, and there is this endless stream of human lemmings that come, go, and plunge over the abyss, never to be remembered. Lift your hands for the benediction. <laughs> what a place to come to at the end of your life. You know, he comes to a part in the book where he says, I wish I was dead. Not only do I wish I was dead, but beyond that, I wish I'd never been born. Ever feel like that? You're surrounded by people who do if you don't. There are a lot of people out there who feel exactly like this. In verse 5, he says, the sun rises, the sun goes down, only to come up again. Since we're talking about Pink Floyd, if you've heard their album, The Dark Side of the Moon, they sing a song called Time, and the words go, so you run and run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking, racing around to come up behind you again. The sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older, shorter of breath, and one day closer to death. I think they immersed themselves in Ecclesiastes. Verse 6 says, 
Sun's the same, wind's the same. For all its restless movement, he says, there's no progress, just an endless cycle like a hamster on a wheel. In verse 7, he says the same about the flow of water on the earth. It's just as pointless. Water runs into the sea, the sea's never full. Where's the progress? Where's the point? Perhaps the African-American stevedore on the showboat musical caught the mood of Solomon when he sings Old Man River. Old Man River, he just keeps rolling along. Long old river, forever keeps rolling along. And he doesn't give a hoot about the slavery and the pain that we're feeling. Some of you will know that song. If you don't know Pink Floyd, the genre's different. (laughs) Mood's the same. Solomon then turns to history and to his own personal experience to reinforce the pointlessness of what he sees in the created order. This guy's so world-weary. He says, just for me, in verse 8, I'm never satisfied. I see and I can't see enough. I hear it's never enough. I'm never satisfied. Listen, when there's no ultimate end, only toys remain. And we know what toys do. They lose their novelty. We've got to have new toys, and the new toys soon leave us tired, empty, and disillusioned. In verse 9, he says, you know what? There is nothing new. It's same old, same old. Leon Uris, in his book Trinity, writing about the Irish situation, ultimately and dismally concluded that book by saying, there's no future for Ireland, only the past happening over and over again. Malcolm Muggeridge, the famous British journalist and broadcaster, once quipped, all new news is old news happening to new people. (sighs) Solomon's cynical. I I was going to save this message for the day that the All Blacks lost. I I just, hopefully they won't, but but I had it ready. And then I thought, that's so negative and gloomy and cynical. They're going to win. The rest of the book's coming, folks. (laughs) Solomon's cynical, pessimistic conclusion is there's no meaning. There's no teleology. there's There's no purpose in life. Now, as I said earlier, if you stop with Solomon's questions and conclusions, you're going to be in an incredibly dark place. The good news is that we've got the rest of the Bible, and we've got the words of Jesus. We have to have a vertical perspective on life or we cannot but agree with Solomon's perspective. You see, it's the New Testament, it's the vertical dimension of life that provides us with the answers to Solomon's despairing questions and his misguided conclusions. You have to read Ecclesiastes while you've got your New Testament open. And a really good place to turn to your New Testament is John chapter 1, verses 1 through verse 14, where John starts off, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him, nothing made that was made. Now, John uses a word to describe the Word. In the beginning was the Logos, Now, there's a long history behind that word logos. The ancient Greeks understood the word logos. They understood logos to be that which is the meaning of life. And like Solomon, the ancient Greek philosophers sought, what's the the logos of life? 
What's, what's the meaning of life? They knew that there could be no teleos without logos. There's no meaning without purpose. You've got to know why you're at sea. It doesn't matter if you're in order and you're afloat. If you don't have orders, that's all pointless. It's just going round and round and round. You've got to have meaning. You've got to have purpose. You'll never reach your potential if you don't know why you're made. Listen, if I came round to visit you, your house or your flat, and as I walk in the door, I notice that you have a brand new, top-of-the-range, beautiful, stylish, functional, Italian-designed coffee machine, and you're using it as a doorstop to keep open your patio doors, I will rapidly conclude several things about you. Number one, you're an idiot. <laughs> only kidding, only kidding. Number, number two, let's keep number one, because it's probably true. Number two, you have no idea about the logos behind that beautiful functional machine that you're using as a doorstop. You don't know why it was made. And since you don't know its logos, that thing will never reach its teleos. It'll never reach its purpose or potential. It might be an adequate doorstop, but effectively it's useless for what it was made to make coffee. Listen, the world of John's time had reached an almost exact similar conclusion to the time of Solomon hundreds of years before. They had reached an impasse in their search for meaning, and they were saying, perhaps there's no logos at all. Maybe we have to manufacture our own logos. Life is pointless, and if it's pointless, then, then do what you like, because because quite frankly, it really doesn't matter. Listen, if the Titanic is sinking, it doesn't matter whether you go down hugging or mugging. It makes no difference. Hugging is being nice. Mugging is pinching your fellow passenger's wallet as you go down. I mean, what's he going to say? What a tragedy. You've just taken my life savings. Duh. Drown, you penniless fool. It makes no difference. It's, it's, in postmodern language, we would say a very tired whatever to the point, to, to, to this, what does life mean? Whatever. Well, in that case, hugging or mugging, it makes no difference. We'll, we'll explore this a bit later on, but moral and social values have to have an objective reality behind them. Otherwise, there's no, it doesn't matter what you do. The, the, the thing that strikes me as just incredible is that people like our Prime Minister, who I, who I believe you know, has a deep concern for New Zealand, for, for its citizens, but at the end of it says, you know, I don't believe in God. And I want to say to him, so what does it matter about your citizens? Who gives a rip? It's all going down. Hugging or mugging makes no difference. Why would you care? At the end, we all end up the same way. John steps into this and goes, no, no, no. The Logos has come. And it's not an it, it's a he. And he has come and stepped into our under the sun world to show us our sailing orders, to 
restore, redeem, and make a ship shape and to reveal God to us so that we can finally ultimately release or realize our telios, our purpose. He reveals an above the sun perspective. And I tell you, when he does, it changes everything of this world wearying sameness that we read in Ecclesiastes. Solomon says, sun comes up, sun goes down. The person with an above-the-sun perspective says, the sun comes out of its chamber like a bridegroom and it bears witness and joy to the strength and beauty of its creator, Psalm 19. And it says, from the rising of the sun to its going down, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Solomon looks at the wind and the water and says, so weary, round and round in circles. The person with an above-the-sun perspective says, as Psalm 147 verse 18 does, he makes the winds to blow, and he makes the water to flow. Instead of the world-weary boredom, the created order speaks of the Lord's steadfast love that never ceases, and that his mercies are new every morning. And the sun coming up speaks to us of his mercies. We see something completely different. We are looking at the same created realities, but everything is different because we're not under the sun. Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, Nothing new, everything's the same. Same old, same old. The New Testament says, no, no, no. We have a new covenant sealed in the blood of our Savior. We have a new heart given by the power of his spirit. In us is a new creation happening, which is a foretaste of an ultimate new creation, new heavens and a new earth. Everything is new. Everything is different because he's come. And he stepped into our under-the-sun world and pulled back the curtains. At his baptism, the heavens was rent and, and heaven opened up. The, the spirit came down. Everything's different. The world-wearying, postmodern life is pointless is turned on its head by the gospel. That's why it's good news. Because I want to tell you, that other stuff is bad news. The only people who don't think it's bad news, and you know, I, I think you know, if I was to give this talk to a regular group of Kiwis, they'd go, what the hell, let's have another drink. Let's go and watch the All Blacks. Let's forget it. Listen, there's an elephant in the room, and the elephant is, why are you here? What's your purpose in life? Why are you doing this? Why, you, why do you get up in the morning? There are lots of different ways to hide an elephant. One is have enough mice in the room that you can't see it anymore diversion, and we are experts at it. We, are, we, we just fill the room with mice. So we say, elephant, what elephant? Let's go and have another drink. Ecclesiastes has been there, done that. He said, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. I want to tell you, life without Jesus is a gloomy affair. You can, you can cover it, you can hide it for a while, but, but as you get older and in those moments where life breaks in on you and the diversions are seen to be what they are, just rats and mice, that elephant looms before you and says, what is your life about? Why are you here? And if you can't answer that question, you're locked into the book of Ecclesiastes and you might as well be honest and say it's an honest appraisal. It's just pointless. Doesn't matter whether you're wise or stupid, Ecclesiastes says you both die. There's got to be something else, and the New Testament is the something else. It's not all old, it's new.
we will be handing out uh, Panadol at the light side and, and um, um, what, what, Prozac at the the guys, the guys have been issued with it. If you're a Prozac, go out that door. If you're Panadol, go out that door. If you're alcohol, go out that door. If you're... Um, please keep coming back because I don't want to leave you there, okay? I've given you a hint as to what, what, where we might go with Ecclesiastes, but um, I don't want to leave you there, okay? You know, uh, I wasn't trying to be funny when I talked about uh, Pink Floyd. Um, artists, whether they are, you know painters or poets or musicians pretty much always are the first to pick up on where philosophy is going and begin to express it through, through, through their um, th through that avenue and um, I, I think the artists like Pink Floyd are, are saying what the philosophers have been saying for a number of years that without some kind of vertical dimension without God picking up the receiver and speaking back to us without revelation we just get lost in the midst of all that goes on in the world and perhaps there's somebody here this morning maybe you've been coming for a little while to Gateway or perhaps this is your first visit and even as we're talking you think you know what my life's like that I haven't got a clue why I'm here in terms of sailing orders you know I'm paddling around in circles I wouldn't know which direction to head the only questions I ask are how how am I going to have a good time this weekend? How am I going to pay for my good time this weekend? How am I going to avoid the consequences of my good time this weekend? I never ask the why questions. Well, perhaps it's time to start asking. Because I want to tell you, Jesus is an answer to those questions. He's come into our under-the-sun world to tell you there's another dimension. That you've been made by God for purpose and that as you begin to be linked back to him, he can reveal that purpose to you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.